This is DeRay, and welcome to Potsy of the People. On this episode, we're joined by Nick Turner, who leads the Vera Institute of Justice. So if we're talking about ending mass incarceration, we have to be talking not only about a massive reduction of the system, but also a transformation of the conditions under which people are being incarcerated. And we have the news with the crew you know, me, Brittany, Clint, and Sam. Before we jump in, I was watching a movie, and one of the lines from the movie was, the end is a part of the journey. And I think that people forget that like, it's a real skill to be able to know when to let go, when to end, when to pass the torch, when to realize that like you've taken something as far as it can go. And part of the journey is to say like, that's okay. And that we have to like set ourselves up for the next thing. And I think about that a lot in the work. There's so many things that I've been a part of and proud to be a part of. Like I did my work, I did my part. And the next part of the journey was to say like, let's do something else. So that's on my heart this week. Let's go. Hey, y'all. It's the news. This is Brittany Packnett at Miss Pacchetti on all social media. And this is Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter. And this is Clint Smith at Clint Smith the Third. Aye, aye, aye. And this is Duray at Duray, D-E-R-A-Y on Twitter. Boom. It's award season. We've seen some cool uh, nominations come out and... Uh, some people have gotten hosting gigs and then lost hosting gigs all in a week's time. It's a, it's a, Whoops! Some a week. It was, it was like it was like twenty hours. You were like watching it yeah. live. You're like, uh, that was this the, is the host. Won't apologize. Then apologize. You're like, here we go. So Kevin Hart was given the position of hosting the Academy Awards, hosting the Oscars, and everybody's like, "Oh man, this is gonna be so great." Kevin Hart, he's funny. Well, I, you know, some people think Kevin Hart's funny, some people don't, but <laughs> it is what it is. Uh, that's a different and, debate for a different time. <laughs> that's a different, different, a different, different podcast. Um, and and so he was given uh, the hosting responsibilities, and then old tweets resurfaced that were homophobic and and like very pretty vile and terrible things. They rearose, and the academy said, "Well, you have to apologize, or else we're going to have to find something else." And he he kept saying, "I've addressed this before. I've said this. You know, I've said what I had to say." And and I'm like, I don't. I haven't looked to see if he's apologized before or what that looked like. But I'm like, even if you have apologized before, just say it again. Just apologize again. Like Especially if you meant it the, the first time, it shouldn't were... be hard to mean it again. Right. Exactly. If you meant um, it the first time. Which people understand. And now, yeah. And now it's like, we don't even know. But all he had to do was say, I'm sorry. And he refused on multiple occasions to say it. And then said, I'm sorry, went after he stepped down. And I was like, but if you had said this before, it was, it was very strange. I didn't understand. There is this question, though, that that you see a lot of people grappling with is, shouldn't comedy be exempt, right? Like, I've, I've seen a lot of people do that, but it's comedy. And like, you know comedy is different and comedy supposed to be satire and comedy. Uh, what do y'all think about that? I saw a lot of that. Yeah. So there were two specific things that people were calling him out on. One were old tweets where he was repeatedly using a slur that I will not repeat. That is indeed very homophobic. Um, and he didn't use it once. He used it over and over and over again. Like there were screenshots of just back to back to back messages of him calling people this slur. The other is that he had made a joke, I think, early in his stand-up career that he would never want his son to be gay. And I think both of them are deeply problematic, but especially as we just look at the amount of hate crimes that folks in the LGBTQ community suffer from, we have to recognize that things that people just dismiss as comedy 
help build a culture. And it help, if that culture is homophobic, it can absolutely be violent for folks. It can be deadly for folks. It can be fatal for folks. And I don't think that we get to just separate the two because somebody got a laugh off um, at what he said. If somebody, if, if that same joke helped contribute to a culture that is not safe for LGBTQ people. Like I just, this, this argument that it's just comedy never really works for me. Obviously, a lot of people are having conversations right now about who should host the Oscars and who wouldn't. Somebody tweeted that they would love to have Kenan Thompson host the Oscars. And I was like, that's a fantastic idea. Kenan. I would actually love Kenan, Kenan and Kel. I was yeah, waiting for Kel. Like, wait, like, Kel better I be mean, a part of this. They could resurrect I would the love Good Kenan Burger and Kel sketch. To host and Good Burger was one of the best films ever made. Uh, so. <laughs> it was at the time. It, it was at the time. When, when you're not like 12 watching Good Burger, it is a different experience. But I actually g- genuinely think Kenan Thompson would be really good. People said Tiffany Haddish. I, I love the idea of it being a woman. I will tell you, and this is going to sound like a very unconventional choice, but hear me out. I think Jennifer Lewis would be great. Now, if you don't know Jennifer Lewis, she plays the grandmother uh. on Blackish. But hmm. she's been in a bunch of films. I mean, she was in the Temptations movie. She played Whitney Houston's mother in The Preacher's Wife. Uh, she, uh, she's been in, like, lots of stage plays, television movies. She's one of the most accomplished ba- black actresses um, ever. But she is also really freaking hilarious. Trace Ellis Ross, I think, would be hilarious and amazing. Ooh, what about Taraji? Oh, Taraji oh, would be Taraji. great. I hadn't even thought about Taraji. I, I'm loving all these. I'm loving all these sister suggestions you all are making. I'm really proud right now. <laughs> the men have not demonstrated. Yeah, I mean, at the, at, the, at this rate, I mean, who knows? It, we, I mean, the next man that's picked is probably gonna, you know, it's not gonna go well for him. So we're gonna just end with the men for now. With, with the men. Yeah, I'm fine with it. <laughs> okay. Woo. Okay. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. So recently, some of you may have heard the name Centoya Brown come back up in social media conversations. Um, Her case has come back into the forefront as we see the criminal justice system continuously not work for black people and black women in particular. So if you don't know her story, Centoya Brown was 16 years old in 2004. She was a victim of sex trafficking, had been purchased by a 43-year-old man, He took her into his home and she was afraid for her life. And so in that space, she found a handgun on his shelf and she killed him. She was sentenced to life without parole at 16 years old for killing this man, even though she was in fear for her life. She has been in jail ever since in the state of Tennessee. And in Tennessee, a mandatory life sentence is 60 years. She has appealed for clemency. That appeal was rejected with opposing counsel saying that Centoya was not, in fact, in fear for her life, but was planning on robbing the man. And recently, she has appealed to the Tennessee Supreme Court, um, essentially saying that juvenile life without parole is unconstitutional. In 2012, SCOTUS made a ruling of that sort. Most recently, Centoya has made an appeal to the Tennessee State Supreme Court. 
appealing on the fact that in 2012, the Supreme Court of the United States ruled that mandatory juvenile life without parole is, in fact, unconstitutional. And so on the basis of that ruling, she made an appeal to the Tennessee State Supreme Court, and five justices unanimously ruled against her. Essentially, what that means is that she's going to have to serve at least 50 years before she is eligible for parole. So it is one thing after the other in this case. Over and over again, we see that when black women try to defend themselves, that the law is actually not on their side. We look at the case of Jacqueline Dixon, who um, was being abused by her husband and killed him because she was in fear for her life in Selma, Alabama, and she is currently in jail. We look at the case of Marissa Alexander, who spent six years either incarcerated or under house arrest before her case was overturned um, as she continued to try to appeal on the Stand Your Ground law. Over and over again, we see that the criminal justice system obviously is not working well for people of color, but I'm particularly worried for black women who keep trying to defend themselves and can find no defense or support in this system. Yeah, Brittany, like you said, we see the courts and the criminal justice system cite their need to defend themselves from some sort of a threat in order to exonerate them in these cases. Uh, but when it is a black person, a black woman in particular, uh, that right doesn't seem to apply. And the data supports this too. So when you look at, for example, stand your ground states and compare them to non-stand your ground states, while there are more justified homicides overall in stand your ground states, meaning that the stand your ground law protects a larger number of people who claim self-defense when they commit a homicide, those effects are not shared evenly across groups. And in fact, the type of homicide that is the most likely to be protected or most likely for the person who commits the homicide to be found to have acted in a justified way in self-defense by the courts are when white people kill black people. So it increases from a 250% higher likelihood of a white person being found justified when killing a black person compared to a white person killing another white person almost a, a two times increase in the likelihood that they'll be found justified in that situation. But when those are flipped and it's a black person killing a white person, the likelihood is virtually the same in a stand your ground state or a non stand your ground state of them being found justified uh, by the criminal justice system. So it's pretty clear who stand your ground laws protect and who they apply to uh, and who is not protected by those laws. They definitely don't protect us. So I just want to bring up a study by Stanford Law School that tracked recidivism rates for more than 800 parole people serving life sentences over a 15-year period of time, uh, and a U.S. Bureau of Statistics report that examined 272,000 people serving life sentences who were paroled from 15 states, and it found recidivism rates of less than 1 and 1.2% respectively. Uh, and none for repeat violent offenses. And this is far below the national average of recidivism, which approaches around 60%. And so I say that to say because so often the narrative around people who have committed violent, quote-unquote, violent crimes or have committed harm against people or who have even taken someone's life uh, is that they are irredeemable, is that there is no, there should be no opportunity for them to uh, come back out into the world in part because of public safety, uh, even though all of the social science, as this Stanford Law study shows, sort of reflects the fact that there's hardly any threat to public safety at all, uh, because what we know is that people often take other people's lives or commit violent crimes when when they're really young, um, and that's for a range of reasons. But, uh, but I just bring that up because I, I want us to remember that this is a situation that warrants being lifted up, but also not at the expense 
necessarily of so many other people who, who deserve to have a second chance at life. Clint, did you just say the study had 270,000 people serving life sentences in it? The U.S. Bureau of Statistics report examined 272,000 uh, people serving life sentences who were paroled from 15 states. That is wild that it's that many people, like that there are even that many people serving life sentences and eligible for, for parole, let alone serving life sentences in general uh, in the United States. Like that is a wild way to think about how many people are just being condemned by the state for eternity, essentially. You know, we often talk about federal legislation. We often talk about things at, at scale at the national level. This is an important reminder of how state laws can impact uh, people's lives and the importance that states have for the reform and the transformation that we want in the system. So Tennessee is a state that has what we call truth and sentencing laws. So in Tennessee, people who are convicted of crimes must serve at least 85% of their sentences before being eligible for early release. And Tennessee law requires that certain offenders serve 100% of their sentences. There have been some attempts to to change this, not because people had any sense of, you know, that the criminal justice system was wrong, but the legislators in Tennessee were mindful that this just cost so much money to house people for so long. And these are things that can actually happen at the local level, that like you can get rid of truth and sentencing laws in your state uh, in a way that will allow people who are convicted like this to go before parole boards and potentially get off early. The Tennessee Parole Board actually does have some non-correction officers. It's a lot of people who used to be police on the Tennessee uh, Parole Board, but there are some, there's like a teacher and, and like some other people who weren't just former correction officers, which is promising. But when I thought about this, I'm always mindful of the way the system like creates these conditions that almost bind even the best actors from being able to do what they know is right. So for my news, I'm talking about how the city of Minneapolis is going to become the first major city in the U.S. to end single-family home zoning, uh, which is a policy that has done a huge amount to entrench segregation and hyper-segregation in cities across the country for for decades. Last Friday, the city council passed Minneapolis 2040, which is a comprehensive plan to permit three-family homes in the city's residential neighborhoods to abolish parking minimums for all new construction and allow high-density buildings along traffic corridors. Some might say, well, why is single-family zoning racist? That doesn't make any sense. It sounds like a very like non-racist thing. Uh, but if you create a system in which you know single-family homes the sort of traditional notion of what someone's home is. It's a single family typically lives there. It's not connected to any other uh, housing. And this is typically more expensive, and it is not something that allows for rented out buildings and units in the same way. Uh, and so when the majority of a city is arbitrarily sort of restricted to only the richest, wealthiest people who can afford single family homes, it then becomes a proxy for race. And you've then in that way, without naming race, created a sort of racist system and single family zoning laws might not make any mention of race because they don't have to, uh, but they continue because of the nature of the circumstances, again, of who can afford them uh, are, are sort of the thing that creates and reifies modern day segregation. And so Minneapolis is, is working very purposely and thoughtfully to sort of eradicate this in a way that no other city, um, to my knowledge, has before. 
Uh, and there are a couple things that made this possible, according to Paula Pentel, who's the coordinator of the University of Minnesota's Urban Studies Program. She says, first, uh, was the election of a very progressive city council dedicated to making room for more housing in the city. Second was the emergence of various activist groups who came out to community meetings. They put up lawn signs. They voiced their support for reforming the system holistically in a way that hadn't happened before. And I bring up those two things because... It's really important to remember how such substantive change can happen on the most local of levels, right? So like this is activists who became politically educated about this issue, who started showing up to community meetings and city council meetings and demanding that Minneapolis change uh, a system that had created profound segregation in their city. Uh, and, and now we are at a point where uh, that is beginning to happen. Clint, this was a fascinating read, in, in particular thinking about the parallels between what this article describes uh, happened historically in the context of housing and then also what was happening in other domains like voting rights and incarceration that were happening around the same time. Uh, So in the article, it says that the U.S. Supreme Court struck down race-based zoning in 1917 and then nine years later found it constitutional for a Cleveland suburb to ban apartment buildings. And then pretty much once that precedent was set that you could find these sort of facially non-racial reasons that would have a disproportionate racial impact in creating a segregated neighborhood. Uh, that then became the practice that was adopted you know, all across the country to segregate neighborhoods, particularly in the North, uh, as they were being segregated in the South through Jim Crow. Uh, and this just reminds me of, you know, oftentimes when we talk about you know, for example, the issue of voting rights uh, and how, you know, after the Civil War and after uh, emancipation, you saw, you know, felony disenfranchisement and poll taxes and all of these other uh, measures being adopted in order to prevent black people from being able to vote, even though uh, after, you know, emancipation, technically, uh, and after the passage of, of a number of amendments, in particular the 13th Amendment, you had the ability of folks Uh, to start voting. And so, you know, I think, you know, this is an example of how that played out in the housing domain. Uh, We saw how this also plays out in the area of incarceration, where, you know, after uh, the abolition of slavery, or at least the partial abolition, you had folks being arrested and uh, forced to to work uh, in the context of prison labor. Uh, So, so again, I think, you know, thinking about these issues, we have to look at them from sort of the 50,000 foot level as well and see that this is this was happening in all of these different domains that affected life, uh, so many different aspects of life at the same time, and that many of these rules and systems and structures are still in place. They haven't been completely dismantled. Uh, and it's important to see a, a major city begin to take the first steps uh, to not only acknowledge that, but to begin dismantling the legacy of all of that. When I was reading this, Clint, the first thing that came to mind was that old saying that the greatest trick the devil ever played was convincing the world that he didn't exist. We talk so often on the pod about all of the things that seem on their face to not be racist, right? To have no racial overtones, undertones, or anything of the like. And of course, looking at this, you're thinking single family homes, as you said, that has nothing to do with race. But we should never underestimate just how clever and creative racists are, especially the ones throughout history. And, you know, we often talk about racist people as kind of bumbling idiots who can't correctly spell the N-word. And I've made those jokes, too. But often it means that we think so much in that way that we don't realize just how clever and creative people have been in order to maintain the kind of culture, society, space, and life 
that they believe is best for them and that is so often one without the presence of people of color. It's also just got me thinking about the ways in which all of these things work together. We've talked so much about how there were uh, employment and educational and financial benefits that were available to white people that simply were not available to black people. Uh, And not only were they not available, we were restricted from them intentionally. Because we didn't have access to those things, we didn't have the kind of employment to be able to purchase a home. And if we wanted to go get a loan, those kinds of loans were denied to us. And if we somehow managed to get the right kind of job and somehow managed to get the loan, we couldn't then go live in the right neighborhoods because there were restrictive covenants and those were sundown towns such that if any black person were in those places after sundown, they probably were going to die. But let's say they got into the right neighborhood and they actually were able to get the loan and they actually had the kind of employment to be able to buy the single family home. Well, then we experienced white flight because as soon as black families started to move into the neighborhood, white families started to leave those neighborhoods and go and incorporate other places. And then, as we were talking about on the pod last week, those communities that were majority white once upon a time go to be majority black, and those homes are undervalued compared to the single-family homes in white communities. And then it's difficult for those same families to, to build wealth. So the cyclical nature of this is something that we talk about all the time, but this is just another one of those insidious ways that it has popped up. I am very interested to see 10, 20 years down the road if the same kind of patterns of white flight are experienced in Minneapolis or if people actually commit and say, no, I want to live and raise my children in an integrated neighborhood. And as a white family, I'm going to, you know, we are going to commit to making that so. It's going to be up to white neighbors and white families and white parents saying we're going to go for something different. The key thing that the law actually does now is that the law provides for multifamily residences in places where they could only be single family. And what that means in practice is that like you can now turn a big house into an apartment complex. So you can now like split a house into two and have two people live in the house. Like things that in a lot of big cities, the zoning is just a little bit more expansive. In Minneapolis, it was very restricted. So there were parts of the city where you could have multifamily homes, but the majority of the city, you just couldn't. And what it turned into, like we've all said, is that it turned into people with money who could buy like four homes. They lived in one part of the city and then everybody else who was essentially renting uh, lived in other parts of the city. And like we always talk about all the things that you don't even know that like create that the conditions for the choices that you make. And when we think about what it means to be in a space of transformation, like we're trying to uncover all the things that you don't see that create the conditions for the choices that you make every day, that we make every day. And like that has to be like the side of change. So my news is about an activist organization in Germany that came up with a brilliant strategy to expose neo-Nazis. So in Germany, like the United States and many other countries now, they've been experiencing a resurgence of neo-Nazis, white supremacist terrorism, uh, and had a massive riot, uh, similar to what happened in Charlottesville uh, in the United States. Uh, But this one happened in uh, Chemnitz, Germany, uh, where you had thousands and thousands of uh, neo-Nazis coming in to protest a a range of things, uh, brown people, black people, immigrants, etc., So what's fascinating about this is you had an organization called the Center for Political Beauty, uh, which ZPS is like the abbreviation that they go by. Uh, And so not only were they able to take the pictures of this sort of massive neo-Nazi march uh, and use those pictures to expose many of the the people who were there, uh, but they also designed this brilliant tactic where they created a website 
uh, that basically the website said that it had the pictures of every single neo-Nazi that was at that rally. And yet it only had 1,500 of about 7,000 neo-Nazis that were there. And so you had neo-Nazis go to the site to look themselves up in the search function because they could to fi essentially find out if their picture was one of those who had been exposed on the site. And so it was brilliant about what this organization did is they actually saved the searches that were done. So the people, the Nazis that went in to look up their names, those search results were saved and then they published the search results. Uh, to expose additional Nazis beyond those that they actually uh, had identified at the time. And so I, I wanted to talk about this because I think, you know, we have seen again and again and again uh, sort of the threat of white supremacist terrorism, the, the rising sort of boldness of sort of neo-Nazis and the alt-right. Uh, and this just struck me as a, a really brilliant tactic uh, to help not only sort of identify and expose them, but also uh, to bring a lot of attention to, to what was happening uh, and then to create an environment where they actually were able to, to create sort of a, a solution that went beyond, you know, what they were individually able to do in gathering the identities of these folks um, and build something that actually could be a model for what we could do in the United States. I'm just here to say booby traps for all the Nazis. I think it's a brilliant idea. And truthfully, like, these are the stories that I think we forget to tell when it comes to organizing and activism. All of the incredibly creative ways in which people subvert systems, in which people actually don't have to do a lot of shouting or yelling or pointing of fingers. They simply set it up so that people can show themselves for who they are. And I think that that kind of activism is brilliant and creative, and I hope that we all learn from it. What I learned from the article is that Nazi-era salutes are illegal in Germany, not just like frowned upon, not just like socially taboo, but are, are illegal. And it's another reminder of clearly the, the Holocaust doesn't even need to be said. It was, it was a devastating, horrific genocide of, of millions and millions and millions of people. But I'm continuously struck about how Germany, specifically Germany, with its history, does such a proactive job of reckoning with and making explicitly illegal or making very clear what they do or don't stand. So, for example, Germany doesn't have the death penalty. Uh, and because, as Brian Stevenson has so eloquently said in, in his TED Talk, there's no way Germany could have the state kill people by law with its history. And, you know, the Nazi era salute is something that had led to so much of the state sanctioned killing that that happened. But I say all that to say we don't do any of that in the U.S., right? Like we're so committed to the the sort of mythology of, of free speech. And I wonder what it would look like for us to be as proactive and forthright and clear cut on rendering illegal and rooting out policies uh, as Germany has done, uh, that have explicitly racist, genocidal, anti-Black in our context in the U.S. connotations and, and symbols and, and histories. I was in Germany not too long ago uh, doing a tour of prisons and jails, and like, I'd never thought about how all of Europe participated in it. I'd always been told a story of like, bad Hitler, Germany did this evil thing to Jews. Our tour guide was like, how many Jews were in Germany in like 1938, I think is what he said. And he was like 80,000. He's like, well, millions of people died in the Holocaust. Like, where did they come from? Because they all weren't German. And it was this moment where he was like, remember that like all of Europe participated in this. That like, yeah, Hitler was like the ringleader who proposed the final solution of killing everybody. 
all the Jews, but it was all the, it was Poland. It was all the other countries that like willingly allowed their Jewish citizens to be given to Hitler for the concentration camps. And like, I'm mindful of that. There are a couple memorials in Berlin, one to the disabled who were the first uh, killed, one to the gay community. There's the big one. And I was standing next to the uh, memorial to the disabled community and having this conversation about like the kids of those guards, like they, like they're, those are the people's grandparents and great grandparents. You know what I mean? Like you have to imagine like that those uniforms and insignia, like that stuff is like hiding somewhere in people's basements and in closets. And because they can't do the Nazi salute and they can't use the symbols, they actually rally around the Confederate symbol, like the Confederate flag, our Confederate flag, which is interesting. Uh, the enduring nature of the symbolism of hate is like really fascinating to me to have like seen or like to been in a place where it led to such dramatic consequences. And the memorial in Berlin is actually in the, it's like right across from where the bunker was, where Hitler killed himself. And they've reclaimed that entire space to like remember what happened. My news, there's a new study that came out and the article is called Dollar Stores Are Targeting Struggling Urban Neighborhoods. And it specifically focuses on Tulsa. One of the key takeaways is that there are more dollar stores than Walmarts and McDonald's. And I thought that was like fascinating. Another thing that they sort of highlight is that the biggest competition to local uh, grocery stores right now is actually dollar stores. It's not... It's not like the big Walmart coming into town. It's dollar stores that are the biggest competition. The dollar stores are actually uh, replicating themselves in low-income neighborhoods. It's it's definitely tracked by race where they set up shop. And that they are actually steadily chipping away at local grocers, uh, people who like survived the Walmarts. Dollar stores are becoming like the linchpin in those communities. And I just hadn't thought about like dollar stores being either that prevalent, being competition to local grocers. I can't, I like don't know a dollar store in Baltimore that I've gone to that sells groceries. I don't know. So I think I may have talked about it before, but when I was teaching in DC um, and clearly not making a lot of money because teachers don't, there was a Dollar Tree and I would go and buy like juices from there, um, snacks, cereal, that kind of stuff so that I can make that paycheck stretch. And for folks who are unfamiliar, there are places like Dollar Tree where literally everything is a dollar. And then there are places like Family Dollar or Dollar General that have either off-brand items or or brand name items that are um, of lower quality that cost less than if you went to Walmart or Target or someplace like that. And it's been interesting reading about this as it's been circulating social media in the article um, that you shared, DeRay, because as um, residents in Tulsa have been fighting this back, they wanted to make sure that the city ordinance that was passed didn't just limit the number of dollar stores that could proliferate in their neighborhood, but that the city ordinance also encouraged the development and opening of traditional grocery stores that would have fresh produce, fresh meats, etc. The fact of the matter is, if you just limit the Dollar Tree, then something else is going to pop up in its place. If you just limit Dollar General, then something else is going to pop up in its place. If you get rid of all of the dollar stores in a particular neighborhood, then folks are going to be driven to fast food if they still live in a food desert. Um, and this is just another example of how it is important to know the things that we need to say no to, but it's also critical to be clear on what we have to say yes to. That activism and justice is not just the work of saying 
no. It is also the work of saying yes to the things that create healthy communities and empower real people. Yeah, Brittany, like you said, I think this is something where you know it's kind of intuitive why people are shopping at dollar stores in low-income areas, but how do we make sure that we're subsidizing and making affordable fresh produce for folks? How are we not canceling programs like the Trump administration proposed to cancel, which would create sort of double up or even triple benefits if you buy, for example, fresh produce at a farmer's market using uh, food stamps. You get twice as much for every dollar that you spend or three times as much under the federal program. Well, like they're proposing to cut those programs now. They're also subsidizing a lot of the unhealthy foods that end up then being more affordable and being offered in convenience stores, in corner stores, in dollar stores. So the economics of what folks can access in terms of healthy foods, like that is like the broader question. Uh, and so we have to think more expansively about, you know, how do we subsidize and incentivize healthy foods? How do we make sure that those are available, they're accessible, they're nearby? Uh, if they're at a grocery store, that they're still at a price point that people can actually afford them who, are, who would otherwise shop at a dollar store? And then how do we build on those models and continue to fund them and scale them up um, as they're working? I will say, uh, Sam, that and Brittany, one of the things that the study shows is that there's growing evidence that dollar chains are not just a byproduct of economic distress, but they're actually causing it. So, like, this study is trying to flip on the head that this notion that, like, of course, poor people are shopping at dollar stores is like the only thing, but like, dollar stores actually coming in and pushing out local grocers and local retailers, which is actually causing a completely different kind of distress in communities. And to that point, I think something that was also interesting in this research is that as Dollar General and Dollar Tree stores sort of root out grocery stores, part of what happens is that, you know, these dollar chains rely on a leaner labor model. And so Dollar Tree, a Dollar Tree will staff eight to nine people on average, whereas a grocery store will employ around 14 or 15 people on average. And so if all of the grocery stores are continuously being replaced and pushed out by Dollar Trees, you're not only getting rid of the physical infrastructure of that store, but you're also bringing in stores that employ fewer people, which to your point, DeRay, would have an economic ripple effect in reducing opportunities for, for jobs and thus upward mobility and thus the sort of larger socioeconomic conditions of that community. And so this generally is, is really fascinating and distressing research that I had no idea about. And I'm really grateful to the folks at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance for, for putting this out, uh, particularly the author's Marie Donahue and Stacy Mitchell. That's the news. Don't go anywhere. More Politic the People's coming. And now my conversation with Nick Turner, who leads the very Institute of Justice. We were all together in Germany doing a tour of prisons, and this is our conversation reflecting on that. Nick, thanks so much for joining us today on Party of the People. You're right. It's great to be here. In Berlin with in you. In Berlin. So we're in Berlin. Everybody listening, we I'm here with the Bear Institute to look at prisons in Germany. But let's start with like why Germany? Why Germany? So, you know, the whole idea is, you know, we've all been in bad relationships, right? And America has a bad relationship with its justice system. And so it's like going from a bad relationship and then you get into a good relationship. So the idea of taking all of these folks, these criminal justice practitioners who have been working in the States for years and years and years, and then they come and they get into a new relationship and they see this place that does things entirely differently than what we do at home, incarcerates at a tenth the rate 
that we do in the U.S., where life sentences are no longer than 15 years, where people's privacy in prison is respected, where they've got rights, where when we tell them what we do in the states, that we take away people's vote, they look at us like we're crazy. So the idea of taking this crew of Americans to see something very different and to be in this new relationship with justice and fairness, the whole idea is to try to get them to take an inspiration from this and bring it back home. Now, you lead VERA, which is one of the many organizations that does criminal justice work in, in the United States. How would you describe how VERA fits into the larger landscape? VERA's been around for a long time. I think in the larger landscape of the criminal justice ecosystem, which has gotten a lot bigger and a lot stronger in the last few years, I would say that VERA's contributions are really two. The first is to try to produce what I would describe as big ideas that are really breakthrough ideas to try to get people to think differently about how to dramatically remake our justice system. So this whole idea of coming to Germany with a bunch of leaders and getting them to try to think in a revolutionary, not incremental way is a big part of Vera's contribution. I would say that the second thing is, is that we're about solutions. So whether it's you know, the Movement for Black Lives or the ACLU or NAA Legal Defense Fund, the role that we play is that we produce the solutions that people are arguing for. And so we work with leaders who are the heads of the government systems that people are saying need to change, and we help them to make them change. The Germany trip seems to be a part of a larger campaign about reimagining prisons. The question becomes, like, why are we reimagining prisons instead of, like, ending prisons? How do you respond to that push? I think right now, I mean, we have 2.2 million people in, in prison. And what I would say, you know, straight off is that it would be amazing if America could get back to a place where we were incarcerating at the rate that we were in the early 70s, which would be to shrink the population down to around 300,000, or even to push for a goal like abolition. But one of the things that we know is that that's going to take a ton of time, that mass incarceration is not only about the numbers of people who are locked up, but the conditions, like their life conditions and what they experience and the degradation and the sort of stripping of humanity. So if we're talking about ending mass incarceration, we have to be talking not only about a massive reduction of the system but also a transformation of the conditions under which people are being incarcerated. I don't think that they're mutually exclusive. I don't think that you can just pursue one. It'll take years. I mean, we've got a lot of work to do to shrink the system. And so I think about the brothers and the, you know, and the cousins and the mothers and the, you know, and the sisters and the fathers who are incarcerated right now. And I can't imagine saying to them, you know, we're not going to worry about your lives. We're not going to worry about the harm that you're experiencing, because we're too busy focusing on shrinking the system. What we have to say is we got to do both. They're not mutually Yeah, that makes sense. Like a both and, not an either or. Exactly. Okay, so let's talk about Germany. So I've been to two youth prisons, a women's prison, a men's prison here, and I've seen some things that have been like innovative, and then I've seen some things that like a prison to prison to prison, so it looks like home. What's been surprising to you so far? Like, Is there anything that you've seen that you're like, wow, I just hadn't... Like, seeing it is so different than, like, reading about it. Let me say this. I think you're right. A prison is a prison is a prison. I mean, there, there's no doubt that when someone is locked away and that they're deprived of their liberty, that is a fundamental truth of their existence. And so in that respect, 
what you see in Germany isn't different than what you see in the U.S. The different thing that exists in Germany is that the Germans say, look, that's the extent of the punishment that you're going to experience. We're depriving you of your liberty, but we're not going to deprive you of anything else. And you've got rights as a citizen, you have rights as an individual, and those things, our jobs are to maintain those. And so you see it in the spaces, you see it in the cells that people live in, which my experience, they they look like my college dorm room. Uh, People can decorate them the way they want to decorate them. They've got privacy. They can lock them from the inside. They have uh, computers and telephones. There are big windows, so it's bright, and some of the places we've seen have been really airy. And then you see it in just these amazing snippets of sort of human interaction. We were touring a women's prison yesterday, and we were all gathered in the hall And then all of a sudden, the door opens, and this woman steps out, and she has in her hand a baking pan. And on that baking pan, she's got flour, and she has butter, and she's got chocolate chips. And she holds it with one hand and squeezes out of her door and then pulls her keys out of her other pocket and locks her door, says, excuse me, walks past us, and then walks into the kitchen two doors down to bake cookies. You don't see any of that in American facilities. And what that tells me is that she's being prepared to be able to go back out into the world and do the things that she would ordinarily do in the world, that there's no interest in stripping the joys of everyday life away from her, and that the autonomy of even being able to have your own key for your own room the respect that's given to you for your privacy, that she gets to lock her door to say, like, no, no one can come in. This is my private space. And that door doesn't have a peephole. And the Germans, when you ask them about that, they say, well, you know, of course, everyone has a zone of privacy, and we wouldn't deprive them of that. I mean, that blew my mind. It's very different. What is it that you've seen in your experience, like, that is holding us at home back from like doing the things that we know are possible in other places? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, there, you know, there are a a lot of things. I mean, clearly there's, you know, there's politics, there's budget. So if you think about these correctional leaders who have operated for decades in an environment where they've never been asked to do anything innovative, where in fact, doing things that would benefit people who are locked up, that would treat them as human, who would give them the services that they need to succeed. Um, They haven't been asked for it. In fact, they've been asked for something very different. And so I think there's also, there's sort of a conditioning factor that's going on here, which is, you know, apart from the political and budgetary constraints, which I think are really real, there's a sort of constraint of imagination. I mean, it's like coming out of a bad relationship. You're in a bad relationship and you set up this set of expectations about what you can do and who you can be. And then, you know, you come here and, you, and you're in a new relationship and you see something dramatically different and you never imagined that that could have been a reality. So I do think that there's some deficit of imagination, you know, and fear of taking risks or not even knowing that that is a possibility for you. And that's, that has a lot to do with conditioning. I do think that there's a, a generational thing going on. I mean, I've been working in this space for 25 years And I think that the younger generation of leaders, the younger generation of reformers have bolder imaginations about what is, in fact, possible. And they're not burdened by decades of being told 
uh, don't do that or this isn't possible. And so, you know, that's one of the things that makes me incredibly gratified about the moment of time that we're in right now. Now, organizing trips like this is a very small fraction of what you do at Vera. Can you talk about some of the other work around prisons that Vera is engaged in? Sure. You know, this gets back to this idea of it's a both and, right? We want to we want to end mass incarceration in terms of the numbers of people that come in, and we want to transform conditions of confinement. We want to reimagine what that environment can look like for people. And so in that context, in that prison context, we're doing three things that we're really proud of. One is we're trying to end solitary confinement, and we're working with 10 states that have actually competed to work with us to figure out how to dramatically reduce their overuse of solitary. We are trying to bring back college education into prison at scale. That ultimately means repealing the ban on Pell Grants that operates at the federal level that was part of the 1994 crime bill. And then the thing that relates most to Germany is that we have an initiative called Restoring Promise, where we have tried to take some of the very best lessons from Germany and the notion that if people are treated as human, if if you have a system that is committed to human dignity, and you start from that very basic point, and you listen to the voices of people who are incarcerated and of people who work in the system and help them to reimagine what that environment can look like, you're going to create a fundamentally different culture and a different kind of unit. So in Connecticut, we've established, a, you know, with that, with that state's leadership, a, a unit called True um, for young adults, 90% black and brown, um, that have mentors who are lifers, um, who live with them. Everything is organized around restorative justice and healing and accountability. And those who are in that unit are getting out earlier uh, than they otherwise would. Over 18 months, there hasn't been one violent incident in that unit, and and the use of solitary has dropped to zero. That is totally dramatically different than what you see in other prisons around the country or even in that state, and we're going to figure out how to take that to 10 states in the next three years. And when you say you're working with states to end solitary confinement, what I think that means is that you are helping them like logistically figure out how to like actually do it in practice. For most people, they would say, I believe that like they can just end it. Like, wh- yeah. why do you need like some partner to come in and like help right. strategize around the end of solitary confinement? So, yeah. what does that mean? I mean, so you have to think about it this way is that for decades, prison administrators have used solitary as sort of the only means of discipline or punishment. Imagine yourself as a parent, you know, when your kid does something wrong, usually the response is proportionate. You know, you might put them in time out or you might take away that you don't get to have dessert today. American correctional system has not operated on a basis of proportionality in terms of discipline that occurs in in prison. It's basically been one size fits all. So for decades, you know, we've built up this population of around 100,000 people in solitary, and it's been automatic. So you have to help them build this ladder of discipline that's proportionate, that reflects whatever the thing that might have gone wrong, rather than throwing everyone in a, you know, in a box for 23 hours a day, seven days a week. So part of it is is rewriting their policies, creating new options for them, retraining their staff who believe that solitary protects them, but it doesn't. 
So the work of sort of changing the culture of institutions is hugely complicated and important. One of the things that I was surprised by here in Germany is that the people who run the prisons are like people who went to law school or social workers, um, which is very different than at home. Most of the people who run corrections facilities are certainly people who grew up in corrections. Do you think that we can build a system in the United States where the people who oversee whatever we call confinement are people who are like practitioners in justice and not solely people who are experts in corrections? Yeah, you know, that blew me away. There are a few things that blew me away. One was that I see a lot of women running systems here in Germany. And when I hear them talk, they talk about the job of uh, being a correctional officer as being a good communicator, a problem solver, someone who de-escalates, that their goal is to help people acclimate to the new space that they're in, but get ready to succeed outside. And a lot of that comes from training. I mean, you I think heard this in one of the prisons we were in where, you know, when people are trained, they go through a two-year training course and then they've got three years of probation and they have to apply for these jobs and they're and they're decent living wage jobs. I mean, that's something that we don't have in in the United States. We also have to figure out how to have facilities for people that are about healing and accountability that are closer to where they live and where there are labor markets where people can be trained to be more therapeutic, um, you know, where it's not a code of just your job is to provide security, but your job is actually to do something very, very different. So I think the economics of it has to change. Where are the bright spots at home? Ten years ago, there weren't a lot of institutions other than ours doing this work. And so that's a huge, I feel like the whole environment is a huge bright spot. We're now building the power to make change. And I'm seeing glimpses, you know, everywhere. I'm, I'm seeing it around reform prosecutors who are being um, held accountable to do something different. I'm seeing it around uh, corrections administrators who are getting the push to and, and having the guts to try to do something new. I'm seeing uh, public officials who are battling one another to be more reform-minded. It's a totally different day. So I you know, I could go on and on, but I'm seeing a lot more hope than the headlines suggest. So one of the things that's interesting about Germany, as you talked about, is like the 15-year sort of life sentence. Uh, some of the prisons we went to had like two-year, two-and-a-half-year sort of everybody there with the maximum you could be there for two-and-a-half years. Are there any bright spots in the States that you think are doing the structural, just like sentencing, like that work is happening? Is there a place that like we should be paying attention to? You know, there are there are, are places I would still just, you know, the the gap between us and Germany is just massive, right? So, but there are, there are places I, you know, I see it in California, or I see it in Michigan, or I've seen it in New York, where, where we've gotten rid of mandatory minimums, and we've shortened sentences where we have taken something that was a felony that would have landed someone in prison time for sure, and recoded it as a misdemeanor, um, where we've decriminalized things. So you see little bits and pieces all over. You see it in Oklahoma, like you saw it in Louisiana last year. So we're making incremental, still, I think, marginal changes in what I would say is sort of like the big superstructure of, of mass incarceration. I mean, we haven't got to the point where life sentences equal 15 years or where entire prisons are made open. So here in Germany, you know, there's this... Uh, amazing oxymoronic notion of open prisons where 
When someone gets a sentence for two years, they go there to report. They may serve their time there, and while they have to sleep there, they go to their job, and they spend their weekends with their families. And this element of liberty is totally preserved. I don't see anything like that in the United States. The closest thing we have is you know, what we call halfway houses, but they're nowhere close. So we have a long distance to go on sort of like the big structural changes. But I do see progress in lots of places on both coasts, red and blue. Same thing about conditions. You talked about the programs that you guys are working on. Are there other like places where the condition work is happening that is promising? Yeah, you know, I mean, when we started doing this work going to to Germany, I mean, one of the things that I like throwing up a, a pebble into a pond and seeing concentric, you know, the sort of concentric ripples, others started taking these trips as well. And so I, you know, we have seen in places like, surprisingly, Idaho, North Dakota. So the, so Leanne Birch, who was the corrections commissioner of North Dakota, went on a, one, of, one of these trips, not with us. This might seem small, but she came, you know, she came back to her her little uh, system in in North Dakota, and she said, "Look, I'm going to let people should be able to wear their street clothes. We sort of strip away their dignity and their individuality by putting them in uniforms. We're not going to do it anymore. We're going to put them. You know, people can wear their street clothes. It's a form of expression. It's a recognition that we're not trying to take away your personhood. So we see things like that in." Pennsylvania, the corrections commissioner went on one of these trips. It made him rethink the way he trains staff so that training them with more sort of therapeutic practices and made him decide to take a look at solitary. You know, I remember the story about him. He had gone to a German prison and desperate to see the solitary wing. And they were like, well, why do you want to see that? They said, well, you know, I just want to sort of get a sense of the feel of it. They're like, well, no one's there. Well, what do you mean no one's in solitary? He said, well, we don't use it very much. And he said, well, how often do you use it? And it was about halfway through the year. And they said, oh, you know, we've used it, you know, I think two or three times this year. Um, and, you know, just maybe for a, a few hours or a few days at a time. So he went back home to try to think about how to do that differently. So I, I think you see things like that happening all around the country. If you were in a room full of young activists or new activists to prison abolition or prison reform, what would be your pieces of advice to them, like given the sheer like scope of your experiences so far? Try to not be so black and white and to not perceive people who may appear conceptually to be your enemy. So, you know, someone who runs a correction system may very well actually want to engage in the kind of reform and be grateful that the advocates and that the activists are pushing and creating political space for her to do that. Sometimes what we tend to do is we oversimplify. We think if you're part of the system, then you're just a bad person. And there are some folks who are like that, but there are also a lot of folks who really do want to make a difference, and they've never had a public that's demanded it, ever. And so all of a sudden the public is demanding it and their political bosses are feeling pressure and that creates space for them to do something dramatic. So understanding that the folks who are running the system or the folks that are pushing those who run the system aren't necessarily adverse to, you know, your goals, I think is an, is an important thing and an opportunity for hope and working together. Now, one of the things that I've been a little bit surprised by in the past four years a little bit 
I don't know, frustrated by in the last four years is that sometimes what becomes a public conversation about this work is like so far from what the actual work is that like people, you know, on this trip, people have asked a lot about private prisons, like the the German conception that like literally every single person in America is in a private prison. You and I both know is not true, but we see these like big energy shifts happen that like might not actually be putting people to think about the biggest levers. From your knowledge, like both about our country and other countries, like what would you say the biggest levers are? In the prison space, you know, I think that the biggest levers, but one of the hardest levers is changing culture. And it's hard because culture is owned by everyone in a facility. It's owned by the warden. It's owned by the corrections commissioner. It's owned by every person online staff. It's owned by, by residents. And so if a culture is us versus them, then that permeates everything in that in that prison. And one of the things that the lessons that we learned from our work in Connecticut and in our Restoring Promise work is that if you sort of start from the bottom to create a different culture and you acknowledge that one of punitiveness and retribution and enmity is wrong and is the source of all the problems, and then you say, so look, we want to get residents and people who work in prisons together to redefine what that environment ought to look like, then that permeates. So you have to be participatory. You have to recognize that all voices matter. You can't come in with a blueprint and say, so here's the program we're going to impose on you. We have to say, you have to really reimagine what this environment is going to be like. And it's a process. And that has proven to be incredibly powerful. We had no idea when we did that work in Connecticut that what it was going to do is that, you know, 20 months into it, that there would not be a single fight among 70, 18 to 24 year olds that the corrections officers could sit and play checkers and, um, you know, and, and give advice to the young people who they were responsible for, that, you know, one of the corrections officers who happened to know a basketball recruiter could help one of the residents who had skills figure out how to get a scholarship and help him get out earlier so that he could go play ball. I mean, that stuff never would have happened. It was completely a product of culture. What do you say to people who sort of agree about like locking people in cages is is generally just like not a solution but there are these heinous crimes that like people should be in jail for prison for like how do how have you responded to those people in the past well you know i mean i'll be honest i'm not an abolitionist i mean i am someone who believes there are certain people who need to be incapacitated I don't think that they need to be incapacitated for life. I don't think that people's lives need to be taken away from them. I don't think that they need to be put in a prison um, where they're stripped of every form of dignity and individuality and that and there has there's zero attention to them succeeding in the world. So you know, so I'll start there and just say that the most important thing really is is that we have to fundamentally, if you could imagine, and and it's hard for people, but imagine a prison that is not like any prisons that we're that we're familiar with in you know in the states, but in fact is entirely organized around um, healing and accountability. And maybe you're locked up for a few years, but that's the extent of your punishment. Then everything else, all of your interactions, all of the services you get, the encouragement that you get is intended to um, help you heal. Um, help you get ready to go back out into the community, um, help you um, acknowledge your accountability, 
that sounds revolutionary and maybe beyond the imagination for people. But, you know, I'm comfortable with that. And is there anything that people can do with Vera? Like, what can people listening, if they want to get involved, is there, what can they do? So people can get involved at Vera by following us, by retweeting, by using us as a place to learn and engaging in us as a source of knowledge. Where can people go to learn more? They can go to www.vera.org and they can go to at Vera Institute on Twitter and Instagram. Well, thank you so much for joining us today on Pot to the People. Deray, thanks so much for coming to Berlin with us. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week.